Welcome to Small Business Startup Stories presented to you by Bitbox. Bitbox exists to discover, develop, and launch the next generation of love-led entrepreneurs. My name is Scott Behrman. I'll be your host for this episode. As always, we interview small business owners to hear how they started their business so that you can gain valuable insights to utilize in your small business start. Today, uh, I have... uh, I'm excited. I'm excited for this guest. <laughs> uh, another though, another one. If you've been following along on the podcast, I've been interviewing my classmates from the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business Program. Again, we're not sponsored by Goldman Sachs, but maybe someday we'll put the plug in. But today we have Shirley. And Shirley, I apologize. I should have asked you this before we actually started recording, but how do you pronounce your last name? It's Keenitz. Keenitz. Great. <laughs> I'm kind of one of those personalities that doesn't even need a last name. I can just be Shirley. Sure. Okay, we'll go Shirley, the, who is the owner of uh, Wolfbait and Bee Girls. And uh, I'm so excited to hear uh, about your small business start and what you do with Wolfbait and Bee Girls. And just to right off the bat, I live in Logan Square in Chicago. Wolfbait and Bee Girls store is in Chicago. And my wife and girls have been to your store numerous times because they love it. That's and, excellent. Yeah. I'm, so I'm going to start asking around, figure out which ones they are. For sure. Yeah, that'll be fun. And uh, maybe at some point in time, at some point in time, I'm going to ask you, my daughter is a creative. So she is, a, I think, I mean, I'm her father. So, you know, uh, but I think she's a very talented creator and artist. And she was like, how do I get in the shop? How do oh, I it's get so shop easy. In there? It's, so yeah. it's the so, most casual and inclusive environment awesome. that uh, we like to blur the line between customer and maker. As you said at the beginning of this podcast, if I can do it, so can you. That's how we feel about making something. Yeah. That's we awesome. all be yeah. creative and expressive and exploring that avenue. I love it. I love it. So what, how about first and foremost, you give me the, like the 30 second elevator pitch for what Wolfbait and Bee Girls is. Wolfbait and Bee Girls is a unique incubator style retail venue for local artisans. We sell a wide variety of items from baby onesies, stationery, jewelry, apparel, art. The thing that unites all of these items is that they're all made by your friends and neighbors here in the Chicagoland area. We do this for a number of reasons. A, because there's more than enough talent here and we're always learning about new ones like your daughter. Yeah, and awesome. also because of the environmental impact of keeping our vendors local, cutting down on shipping and packaging, creating more sense of community where we're interacting face-to-face with them. I mean, pre-pandemic times, but yeah. mm-hmm. um, still that intimate, inclusive feeling of a community center that is also intertwined with them developing their micro businesses as artisans. We've been doing this for 15 years and we won't ever stop. Yeah. There's so many words that you use have been describing <laughs> what you do and why you do it. Like that right off the bat, it's like, I love it. And that's what I love about just small business, right? It's like the intimacy with you're in the neighborhood, right? You're serving yeah. the people who you see and used to be able to touch physically, it's you know, give them a hug. During the pandemic, because being one of the few places that can have open hours with some gathering, I mean, no more than six at a time in the shop at the moment, yeah. but um, people are even more open in our environment than they used to be. And 
eager to share their experiences of this unusual time, a place that they feel comfortable and welcome. It makes me feel like we've really created something that's helping people. Yeah. Have you found that that more people have uh, approached you to create with you or, or, or with things that they're creating during sure, the pandemic? Sure. So many people becoming unemployed and looking to their intrinsic talents to find a way to care for their family, to fill their time. Um, a lot of people have taken the pandemic as an opportunity to pursue a trade, you know, whether it be jewelry making or letterpress printing. Uh, everything we sell involves some skill and experimentation. And then there's just a leap of faith when you actually show it to someone in a venue like ours, when you let the customers judge you and, you know, yeah. decide whether or not you have worth that your creation has value. And more and more people are interested in exploring that as the economy is so uncertain in other regards. Yeah. Do you see a difference between makers who release their products on, or is there a difference on a platform as uh, what's what am, what am I? Oh, Etsy. Etsy. Yes. Yeah. Um, is there a difference, or do people do both? I think or, people like, frequently do both. I don't think Etsy comes with the same benefits because you're not mingling with like-minded makers that can share their triumphs and disasters, and you know they learn from one another. Um, working together and they learn from their customer because they're interacting with them in real life. It has been a real learning curve for us through the pandemic because we were a business that always focused on interaction and experience. We were 100% built about lifestyle and action really of making something, of sharing the skill that it takes to make something, of sharing that thing you made with other people all in person. It has so much value to us and shifting to a more Etsy-like business model by offering our makers marketplace and doing some virtual things. I see a stark difference between the two, but I think artists looking to make a living on what they create need to explore all the venues. And that's one of the reasons we don't have an exclusivity agreement with any of the artists we represent. We really want to be a resource to help them find more representation, not less. Gotcha. And we created a maker's marketplace that I had um, included in my growth plan with you at 10KSB, where they can list all of their items similar to Etsy and the artists or the customer gets the feeling of shopping Wolfbait online. But in actuality, it's just a UX directory. So they're redirected to the individual artist to support them completely. They receive 100% of the sale. And that's one of the ways that we tried to meld our good intentions and our brick and mortar with like a benefit to them online. Just during this pandemic time, of course, we will continue that resource for them as long as they find it beneficial. But I don't think that it, for me, it doesn't feel the same. But, you know, perhaps I'm a Luddite. I like to look at something with my my hands, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I look with my hands, I touch it, I feel it, I see how heavy it is, the texture of it, mm -hmm. you know, the fingerprints in the pottery. It just matters to me. And like we've learned, you can't trust what you see online necessarily mm -hmm. even when it comes to like the images of an item it just it doesn't have it doesn't have the the magic for me now i know a lot of people are shopping online and that those mm -hmm. venues can be really successful but i think that the wolf bait experience is best in person yeah 
Yeah, and I agree with with that same, you know, being able to touch and see something with your actual eyes. Yeah. Or yeah, some I don't, don't want to give that up yet. Woodscraft person, but they're a terrible photographer or they don't know how to write a blurb about it. You know, they don't get the same kind of someone could be terrible but take great pictures and be able to do social media. You know, that's one of the things about being an entrepreneur is that there's so many different things you're expected to be able to do. It's yeah. not like you can excel in your one chosen skill and that it'll all come together for you. You, you have to have this really well-rounded knowledge base in order to conquer all of those variety of obstacles. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that can get in the way, right? Like yeah. it, it's like a benefit and a curse sometimes like, oh, I could do everything myself. But then it's like, Oh, I got to do everything myself and yeah. it gets overwhelming. And then that can like slow you down, especially with starting something. So let's go there. Yeah. Like the more successful the store gets, the less time I have to sew my own collection. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's go there. Like, how did you start? What was the, the impetus to say, like, I'm going to start this business? Well, what, what did heard- that look like? selling my clothing collection, which I still make. It's called Bruiser. I predominantly make uh, women's pants, but I do make a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so was Jenny Stadler, my business partner. And we were selling at various pop-ups and we were going to like maker meetups that were listed in New City and like the free paper because this was the early 2000s and internet would just was, you didn't have access to the kind of <laughs> community that you do now online. Right. That's probably why we're hardcore Luddites. But anyway, we were doing all that. We were participating. I was a member of the AIBI, the Apparel uh, Industry Board of Illinois, just to meet and learn. And I was really putting myself out there is how it came to be. And there really wasn't anything out there like what we wanted to be. We wanted there to be a place where you could experiment with what you were making and meet a customer through that item without the request for capital that kind of producing on a larger scale requires. We wanted a place for people that were the B girls, the B side, you know, not the A group, the people that were willing to be weird, that were really expressing themselves more than just a brand, something that maybe wasn't so neat and tidy as that, you know? And we met Jenny Stather and I through that weirdo group of makers hustling their stuff. And we both really wanted to make a place like that, a venue like that, where it was easy for people to experiment. We came across our location in Logan Square before it was even built. It was new construction with the first and only tenants of a commercial condo unit right on the square in Logan Square. Yeah. We started with 12 artists 15 years ago, including Jen and I. So like 10 other artists were loaning us their goods so we could try and sell them for them in this new venue. We now have that same consignment incubator style retail with more than 350 different local artists. Wow. We really pack it in because it's a small shop. Yeah. But that'll be one of the benefits to the Maker's Marketplace too. We can now showcase things that don't physically fit in the store or artists can also list more than we can accommodate in the store. So you started off, you had the idea and you started off right away at a, in a retail spot. Right away. I mean, oh. I... I moved to Chicago in 2003, fresh out of fashion school. 2006, I opened the doors to the store. I sold at Penelope's in Wicker Park, which is still there. They're a great shop. Yeah. Um, they picked up my line, but we didn't have any sort of trial wolf bait. We were just all in, you know? Mm-hmm. And how did that feel like signing a lease on something that was kind of experimental? 
I didn't, I wasn't maybe as afraid as I should have been because I was like, you know, 23, 24 years old. I was like, I'm going to totally rule the world. So just give me whatever I need to sign to like start my adventure. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. There was not a lot of room for doubt in my youth. Great. I mean, I still don't make room for it. Fuck that. Yeah. I was going to say, do you, any regrets to, to that, that decision this day? No, no regrets. Yeah. I actually have a tattoo of a seam ripper, which is how you rip out something you sew. Yep. It says no regrets. Awesome. Uh, which is kind of ironic because it's how you fix things you've ruined. It but, is. Uh, it. When you opened the shop, was this like your primary primary source of income? No, I'm like, a service or... industry girl. I was a waitress for a long time. Okay. I, uh, I waited tables here in Chicago for years while I also had the store. Luckily, not doing that now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. It's not easy being in the restaurant industry, as we know. Yeah, the current situation definitely not. Yeah, yeah, but no, it took it took years of working multiple jobs. Um, we didn't get any sort of investors. We did it with tips that we saved ourselves, and I don't think we paid ourselves for years. I, we didn't even pay ourselves for the items we were making and selling at the beginning. Oh, really? We just did that it. That money was just going back into like into and rent. And, going. Yeah. yeah. And it still felt good. It still felt like a great big win that I had a place where I could do what I wanted that was mine. I was going to ask, like, what's the, the motiva- motivation, the primary motivation behind that for you was, was what? Sometimes it's hard for me to define why I behave the way that I do, <laughs> but <laughs> I think that I I live intrinsically. I look to myself and what brings me joy and kind of follow that path more than I look to what others might expect from me or want. <laughs> And only when I look back can I kind of tie different things together to see maybe why. But I don't think that it comes into play as I'm making the choice. Getting to know who you are through even these questions, I, I'm sure some people are listening and they're like, okay, what's the name? Where did the name come from? What does it yeah. mean? Right? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, like well, it's a consignment store. <laughs> Logan Square consignment. It's from a book called Chicago Confidential that was written in the 1930s. It's a very slanderous, racist, ageist, sexist book that was given to men of industry to encourage them to bring their business to Chicago. There's a chapter in that book called Wolf Bait about all the young farm girls that were coming to the city and how easy it was to underpay them and take advantage of them and how ripe for the picking they were. And then there's another chapter in the book called B-Girls and G-Strings. And it's talking about how the only jobs women should have are barmaids and burlesque dancers. And we took this seedy underbelly of Chicago history and decided that if this was how they were going to define women in business, we were going to we were going to own that. We were going to yeah. be wolf bait and be girls. We were going to show them what women are capable of in business and in life, you know? Yeah, so that's a deep meaning to, to that name. And I love the story and the motivation behind it. Well, we yeah. love to salvage things. We're all about upcycling and being environmentally friendly. So a lot of the pieces in the store are also part of Chicago history. We have old printing press drawers from the Sun-Times building before they tore it down that we showcase earrings in. Um, we have a lot of stuff that's been salvaged from 
demolished buildings in in Chicago and um, businesses that came before ours. And we like to repurpose and reuse that stuff and kind of hang on to those entrepreneurs that did their go. Yeah. So what give us give us a general sense of some other items like what do people have the artists and, and makers have in your shop? A to Primarily, Z. You don't give all of them, but yeah, we say apparel, accessories, art, and gifts. But okay. um, it, it's kind of evolving all the time because we're customer curated. The way that our consignment policy works is we'll pretty much try anything that's of quality that was made by someone local. So yeah. it doesn't have to be to my liking or Jen's liking or in our in any sort of strict branding. We'll try it. You have 60 days. And if people okay. are buying it, way to go. We'll continue to carry it. If it doesn't sell, then we ask you to mark it down. And if it still doesn't sell, we ask you to pick it up. So what we carry is always changing based on what you guys are making. Mm -hmm. And then also what you guys are buying. Yeah, It's a fully interactive venue for the community because everyone who participates in it shapes it. So explain for me the idea of consignment. Okay, consignment uh, is when an artisan gives us their product to sell, but they don't get paid for the sale until after the sale happens. So you may give us $100 worth of inventory, and then we sell $50 worth of that inventory. You only get paid a percentage of the $50. You don't get paid for everything you gave us. You can pick up the remaining inventory, or you can leave it there to sell for the next cycle. It's not that different than like 90-day net, or mm -hmm. 60 day net, you know, like sometimes we would say we bought that from the person, we would have a certain amount of time to pay. But instead of paying it in that time frame, they paid after it sells. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it, yeah it makes it so we can do it how we do it. It makes it so we can be inclusive, that we can let everybody try because it doesn't affect our risk. So you have to have some, I'm assuming you have to have some sort of limit right to how many items you can carry because just the the size the space in your store it happens really organically well it's fashion oriented we have a lot of jewelry and apparel and handbags accessories hats all those kind of things we have t-shirts then we have a small baby section we have a bath and beauty section we have stationary greeting cards ceramics home goods we have some edibles we have handmade chocolates we have spice kits and stuff like that but because it is primarily fashion it is trend driven so no one artist holds on to the meat of the customer attention for very long. Mm. So kind of naturally, almost like the seasons, feather earrings are big. <laughs> Everyone's making feather earrings. We're selling all these fe feather earrings are fading. You know, like yeah. this person gets a shot, a shot at the limelight, you know? Yeah. So our artists also have to be evolving. They have to be ready to offer new products. They have to be ready to change to customer demand. A lot of our bath and beauty products have gone vegan because of the interest from the customer base. We've started selling more and more upcycled things as people become more environmentally co uh, conscious. Again, it, it's shaped by the, the community and even the, the quantity is so because you know what's coming in is going out kind of really balanced you know, between what mm -hmm. is new from new makers or existing artisans and what is being purchased by the customer. What has been an item that 
has come into the shop that that ha was a trendsetter or or shocked or like surprised. By, it's called Citrus by Talia. I think her Instagram is one two three citrus. They're sliced oranges that she dehydrated and varnished, and then she made them into earrings, and they look almost like stained glass. It doesn't make sense. They're yeah. beautiful, wildly popular. And they began being wildly popular maybe two summers ago. And we thought it was a summer fling. It was a love affair with citrus, but still to this day, so popular. She's really slaying it with her biodegradable citrus earrings. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. I love that. My, my other daughter who I didn't, wasn't speaking of uh, off the bat, uh, I have two daughters and two sons. Uh, she is, she makes uh, ear earrings and jewelry. And so she's gotten into that a little bit. And uh, so that's fun to hear, like just the creativity, like that's, that's neat creativity, thinking out of the box and, and creating a product that. Oh, they're beautiful too. She does little limes now. She's sometimes yeah. does great big grapefruit ones, real statement that's ones. Fun. Yeah. And you know, they're, they're also cost excellent. You know, they're 16 to 20 bucks. We have a wide variety of price points. We do also have like high-end jewelers that are metal smithing gold and silver, you know, at a completely different price point, but only in a place like ours, could you have those things next to each other? Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about the community aspect that you have uh, in your business. And then how do you, how have you created that and how do you cultivate that and nurture that creator community? Well, coming at it as makers ourselves, we're participants in our own business. We get the same cut that every artisan gets on the stuff that we make there. We understand the pitfalls and the hopes and the pain that go along with being a maker and putting yourself out there. It's, it's a very brave thing to do. But the community has grown because DIY has grown in a lot of ways. It's so interesting to think about. I, there's so many connections that I've made at the store that mean so much to me. Um, mm. So many friends, you know, and so, so we've seen so many people outgrow us even and how exciting that is like a, like an empty nester almost when you see someone really take off, you know? Yeah, for sure. We've always focused on being just as much a resource as we are retail. So we're very free in sharing any insights or expertise we might have from what kind of business license you need, or if we can make connections from artisan to artisan or artisan to customer to help them grow their business or find the funding or venue or promotion that they need. We send out an email every other month that we offer them different opportunities that have been offered to us because sometimes we'll represent the group but a lot of the times we pass it to them to say, would you like to represent yourself at this fair in this way or whatever? And then whoever wants to can have their own set up there. And then mm -hmm. we represent the people who didn't, the people who couldn't afford a table at that show or have the time to be there to represent their own products. So we're committed to sharing knowledge. I mean, I think it's a cliche now or at the very least a hashtag, but collaborate, don't compete, right? There's so much more power in us as a group than any one of us could have individually. And that's kind of the basis of the marketplace online too. All of those individual makers, as talented as they can be, it's very hard to find them individually online. But if you band them together in the marketplace where there's all these people, you know, you can explore 300 some artists at once as opposed to trying to find one, find one, you know? So it's strength in numbers for sure. We joke that we're trying to unionize the gig economy. 
know, <laughs> Maker well, Union yeah. 2021. We'll see. Right. That's a an aspect, I think, well, that we're, I mean, it's just innate in who we are as human beings, right? That connection and community, a shared, uh, like a shared mission and vision kind of in life. It's always nice to connect with other people who are doing similar things that you're doing, and especially in the maker community, right? Like creating, putting it out to the world and hoping that you could continue to do more of that. Yeah. With and, about the store, I say all the time, the people are my favorite part. I love that. Yeah. And that's how, like our vision for Vitbox is that it's a similar thing. It's not, and we're not doing products, but helping people start their thing is really at first and foremost, at the base is the belief that everybody's got something inside of them to bring to the world and serve the world with it. That is more than just punching a clock and being a cog in the machine yeah. of industry, I guess is how I would, I would say it. And so starting, so we're like the provoker and then trying to like help them really get to understand like who they are, what they really enjoy and what they would, could do possibly for a living or on the side to make some additional income or turn it into a business or be someone with inside an organization that can uh, bring a little bit more value and, and serve the people around them. So that community piece and that maker piece, we all have a maker inside of us. In yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we believe so. We, you know, our skill sharing classes are taught by makers to encourage other people to get on, on the bandwagon, to join the club. So tell me about the skill sharing classes. What do those look like and, and how do you offer those? Well, pre-pandemic times, they were offered in the store. We have a large work table where Jen and I make a lot of the apparel that we clear off and different guest instructors that are also vendors at our boutique would teach the skill that they sell there. So, you know, an earring maker would teach an earring making class and book binder would teach a book binding class. We had candle making classes, all those kind of things. We also offered um, free classes to the boys and girls club about entrepreneurship, about pursuing creative talents, really anything that the community asked for, we would try and facilitate, you know, mending, all sorts of stuff like that. COVID makes it harder to get a group in our small space. So we began in the summer partnering with Patchwork Farms, which is a fantastic urban farm. It's actually several plots, but their main yeah. one is on Chicago Avenue. They do a sliding scale farm stand. They do a lot of great work in the city. And we were able to host our skill sharing classes outdoors at their urban farm. And we moved into a natural beauty set of classes. So um, we had a wonderful bath salt maker, Tamara, and she taught about native plants and how they could be used in beauty products. Then you'd make your own like winter salves and stuff like that. They were mm -hmm. very popular and super fun. And everybody was outside, socially distanced, masked, learning about plants, learning about how they could help you, learning how you could DIY it into a self-care kit. Also, maybe use those skills to sustain your family, you know, to meet those financial requirements that we all have. You know, that is an aspect to all of the things that you learn, uh, incorporating them into your livelihood. But they're really fun. And now in the in the depths of winter, it's a little bit harder to offer them. But we'll be back on it as soon as the weather's better. And we'll be back indoors as soon as as soon as we can. Yeah, as soon as we can is, is the hope. And the sooner, the better. Yeah. I woke up the other. It was... Uh, it was the first time, and we're in Chicago, so for context, Chicago, Illinois, in the United States. I think it was 17 yesterday. 
yeah. So for those in the Maldives who are listening to this, uh, that's that's where we're currently. And uh, I woke up. It was last Monday. I woke up and it was the first time that I just felt such the winter doldrums of like, I don't want to get out of bed today. There was the, we didn't have sun for I don't know how oh, long. Yeah. Uh, today though, it was nice. Yeah, but then it was compounded by COVID because in the in the past I would be like, all right, well I'll get up and go to a coffee shop and work at a coffee shop, just change a pace. Now it's like home or office, but there there could be worse things, right? You know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm grateful for what we have. I'm <laughs> so, hoping that we have like some sort of survivors bond. I'm always looking for a way to bring people together. You know how after winter Chicagoans seem like they're all best friends? Like we're all yep. like, we did it, guys! Like yeah, yeah we made it. Green, put your shorts on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I think after COVID, hopefully, as a globe, we uh. will support each other and feel connected to one another for surviving this. Right. We all, we all for a myriad of reasons, just need a big hug from someone. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, and just to hear like, you know, it's been hard, but we can make the world a better place together yeah. and being able to finally like get together in a physical space will be, uh, yeah. I hope that's the case. And I, I'm hopeful that it will be. So. Me too. Me too. Hopes are high. Yeah. So on that note, actually on the hope note, uh, what's your what's your hopes, dreams, goals for Wolfbait and B Girls? Like what's what's the thing you're headed towards? What am I headed towards? Well, you know, becoming something bigger than the little shop we are by building the website that we built during the pandemic was a, a big step. It's something I mapped out during our time at 10KSB. Um, it's definitely still a work in progress, but it's there. It's functioning. We're adding to it and learning from it all the time. And I think that really opens up the doors to make our community something that doesn't have to be so geographically desirable. And whether or not we're involved with other incarnations of Wolfbait in other town, cities, nations, I just hope that they happen. I yeah. hope that the consumer becomes more conscientious I hope that the political turmoil of the past four years makes people realize that every dollar they spend is a vote, that they're shaping their community with all of these small choices, mm -hmm. that those things are really weighted, that it's not just you know a, a pair of jeans or a pair of earrings. It, it, it's supporting artistry as an industry, as opposed to just homogenized, mass-produced nonsense. And whether or not Wolfbait is big enough to boost that kind of, you know, I just hope that it's happening. I hope that it's um, in our collective subconscious now. I hope that we're all learning a lot of lessons during these times that we spend on our own and that we move forward more conscientiously for the environment, for the economy, for all of it, that we yeah. think about the the people behind the products, you know, at Wolf Bait, but everywhere you shop, every time you do it, you're supporting something, whether you know yeah. it or not. Amen. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I'm thinking in my head over hearing that. I'm like tearing up because it's like, yes, I love that. If anybody took anything from, I think they're going to take a lot from this interview, but that your vote is a dollar, right? Your every dollar is a vote. Every, every dollar is a vote. Money, you're you're giving power to to someone. Yeah, it's a, empower. It's a vote for the way you want the world to be. For sure. And that's hard. 
right? It's hard to like live in that weight well, and tension. Responsibility, right? Yeah, and responsibility. Yeah, about great. it about how we've all seen it happen with food. People became more concerned about what they were eating, where it was coming from, or the popularity of organic produce, people becoming aware of antibiotics and the meat that they eat, people just making different choices about that, becoming more aware of the shipment of food, being more conscientious about shopping at farmer's markets. Yep. Uh, we've watched that movement grow. That movement needs to spread into you know, the fashion industry, into all the different products we buy, being conscientious of the true cost of what saving your your money on the the other version is but it's it's easier for food because what is the difference between regular broccoli and organic broccoli maybe a couple of bucks but mm -hmm. the difference between a sustainable or ethically made garment and an H&M or Target garment is you know maybe $100 so it's a harder jump to make but it's just as important you know, there's still people being taken advantage of in the production cycle. There's still environmental consequences to those choices. And I think that the more we expose it and talk about it, the easier it'll people will be to make those choices. You know, they'll feel that weight that in, in our culture that is somewhat vanity obsessed, it, it's hard to get people to see that deeply into fashion. You know, they, they want it because the outer layer is the most important layer in American culture, unfortunately. You can say a lot. You can say a lot more about what you believe by the choices you make when you're when you're dressing yourself. Yes. I, I get uh I have those so same hopes, dreams, and desires for the world. And uh I'm I'm a service industry guy, so like my experience is limited to especially like products. So I interviewed Sari, like I said, uh, mm -hmm. or Sari, and she, you know, she's made baby paper and, and it's a product and I, that's like completely out of my understanding. I've never made a product. I don't know what it takes to get a product to market, but I get overwhelmed with like the, the change that I think needs to happen in the world and what that actually looks like like locally sourcing fabrics. Like, what does that look like? You know, the complexity of fabric is made of cotton and where's yeah, the cotton where grow? Cotton and how does the cotton grow? Most and then in India and like their water tables like ruined from the pesticides we use to make <laughs> cotton. I mean, exactly. if you really start to look into it, it's, it's really, really messy. And that's why people look away. But <sighs> man, yeah, you can be a little bit more conscious about who you're supporting when you spend whether it's garments or produce or a bookstore. I mean, just always go local, always look for owner operated. You can ask them questions. You, you can find yeah. out if your ethics or beliefs or values are in line. And I think that's important. And more so now that I'm a parent, modeling the kind of behavior that I want them to expect from the world yeah. informs my decisions. Yeah, yeah, we, we went through a transition in our, um, uh, just our food consumption and what we eat and where we get it from. Like that was, that was a health related change in our family, but it's become a deeper ingrained, like, like we buy from a farmer yeah. <laughs> uh, and we're, we're a drop-off location in Logan square for this farm that's in Indiana. So not just not too far away. Like it's, yeah. it's local and yeah. in the region and, and the benefit yeah. of eating seasonally. I mean, all of those things. Seasonally and like the chickens, you know, they eat bugs. And, you know, it's like the eggs are like, Jenny, my wife, 
points out the differentiation between like the color of the yolk and an egg from the grocery store and from the farm. It's like, are these the same things? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it takes a lot more work, but there is a, yeah. I mean, and that's like the hope that I have with Vitbox is like the, the whole like love led entrepreneurs is just like, comes from like the golden rule, like love your neighbor as yourself, right? Like, let's just start there and then think about like how, and then it's like, how does every choice I make like impact my neighbor who's right next door or my neighbor in India who has to work on the cotton farm and be exposed to those chemicals. And then it's like, that's why I'm like, yeah, there's people out there that have the capability and desire within them. They just need to be like stirred up and said like, Hey, you, you can, you have the capability and you have the experiences to maybe tackle these big problems whether it's on a local level or a global level, yeah, just don't just sit in a cubicle yeah, yeah. <laughs> and write code for Facebook, you know, whatever. But, you know, like take that brain and that those skills and those abilities and like turn them into something that like actually like does good for the humanity and helps us all flourish. And it together. can be rewarding. You know, I make my fair share of bad decisions. But, uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I'm not. Let me get off my high horse. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> just as long as you're a little more conscientious, you know, it's, yeah. it's like anything. You you, you make a, a baby step towards being aware, and I think uh, people yeah. took some real steps. I'd say during the last four years, and especially during the pandemic, uh, about being more careful of who they're supporting when they yeah. shop. And I, I think that'll definitely affect Wolf Bait's future. And I like to call them sister stores, other stores that share our ethics and sensibilities. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I love it. But yeah. So let's, let's kind of, we'll, we'll bring this, this uh, plane and, and, and land it here. I got two last questions for you. Okay. So the first one I have to, to close this out here is what advantage do you, you personally see and experience in owning your own business versus your experience in in working a job? Well, autonomy, being able to decide that these are our priorities, that we're going to use recycled packaging, that we're going to, you know, I don't have to do bidding of someone who doesn't share those values and concerns. I I don't know that I ever had a grown-up job, though, Scott. (laughs) I've been working for myself for 15 years, so I... And I was only ever a waitress, which wasn't like I had to do a lot of what somebody told me. I guess I had to get them what they ordered. Yeah. But I I just don't want to speak on a topic I don't know. Sometimes the grass seems greener. Sometimes when you're dealing with a pandemic and a shutdown and you're trying to get PPP money, you're like, why don't I just work for someone else? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I have that. I'll be honest. I had that. I have that same thought a lot of times. But then, you know, other times when you're connecting with a, a customer or an artisan in, in a way that is so valuable, especially in times like these, I can't imagine toiling away in a cubicle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not like one is better than the other. I like, I, I don't want to ever say like, Oh, entrepreneurs are like, you know, they're each working for someone or working for 500 people, (laughs) you know, as they say is like, if you're a business owner, you have 400 clients, you're working for 400, you have 400 bosses. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. One, but yeah. Entrepreneurship though, it brings great diversity. You know what I mean? Like 
if we all worked for somebody else, we'd all end up working for that same person. Do you know what I mean? Like, I like that ideas are explored through entrepreneurship. You know, I, I'm all about experimentation and ingenuity. I want to see the next crazy idea, you know, whether it works or not. I, I mean, there's a lot to be said for failure, too. I, I almost feel and I hate to say this, especially recorded where it could be used against me later, but burdened by success in a way, because one of the first things I ever really seriously tried to do, like worked out. Mm. So will I get to try something else? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There, there's actually a Tom Robbins quote about it that I don't remember exactly, but there's nothing more freeing than failure. You know, you got nothing to lose. And when you succeed, you're just expected to do better the next time. So uh, if you're considering entrepreneurship, like I'm sure some of your listeners are, know that even if it goes poorly, you'll learn so much from of it and you're, then you're free to try something else, you know, success yeah. in its way, even moderate, humble success can be, can be limiting in a way. You know, now I feel that the artisans I represent are dependent on me, you know, mm. financially and for a community and a venue, you know, like. I don't get to change my mind and do something else tomorrow. I put a commitment to this group that I'm going to yeah. work really hard to make it work for all of us. And that's the win, you know? So Right. I, uh, my, my son uh, has a science project. He was supposed to submit some work for on Monday and he didn't. And, and Jenny, my wife asked him, Hey, Simon, how did Monday go? And he just, he just like, broke down in tears because he didn't have his work done. And, you know, when I got home, I was just like, hey, how was your day? And they knew what happened. And and the, the best part was his just his tender heart. Like yeah. he knew that he had fallen short of the expectations and what he was supposed to do. But I, I had a dad moment where I like gave out the, this line, like, the only failure in failure is to fail to learn. And I'm sure somebody else has said that. Jenny's like, that was great. I'm like, I'm sure maybe somebody else has said that I didn't, in something similar in that way. But but that's true. It's like, yeah, you got to you gotta take risks. And even, yeah, there's there's a lot of risks in in starting something and making something and presenting it. Like that's from from making an item to making a business it's the same thing right you you have a dream of creating something and presenting it to the world and kind of holding your breath to see if it's going to be reciprocated and someone saying oh yeah i want i want that and yeah. i'll pay you money yeah. for it i think it's important though and important especially for women to say i have value what i make has value you know pay me <laughs> And uh, that's something we like to encourage at our store with our artists, with our employees, just knowing your, knowing your worth, knowing that you're adding something to the community by participating. Yeah. So last question to wrap us all up is what piece of advice, and we maybe have covered this, but what piece of advice would you give to an aspiring entrepreneur? Oh, no, I, I can't give advice because I just don't take it, you know? <laughs> so I, would that I, be it? No take advice? I don't really. I'll nod politely and be like, oh, yeah, thank you. But, yeah, yeah. No, uh, I, I, like I said before, live intrinsically. You know, I, I think that you'll never be sorry for what you did if you did it because you yearn to from the inside. If you let external rewards or fear of punishment or expectations of other individuals decide what path you take, it'll never be satisfying to you. Period. <laughs> yes. 
Done. Drop the mic. <laughs> well, Shirley, thank you so much for your time and, and your insight and your experience and your story and your passion and uh, just everything that you brought, you bring, you just bring in who you are, but that thank you for bringing it to, to this podcast and interview today. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'm thankful for you and the work you're doing and excited to continue to I've never walked in your store. Shame on me. Uh, but my also, family has. I'm there this weekend. Weekend only awesome. now that I'm remote schooling all week. My business partner's there on the other days. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, we. I'm going to swing by. So I'm looking forward to, to doing that. So again, thank you so much. And I appreciate everything that you, you're doing in the world. Thank and you, Scott. It was to be here and talk to you about uh, what we care about. Yes, that's great. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Small Business Startup Stories presented by Bitbox. Bitbox exists to discover, develop, and launch entrepreneurs. We believe anyone has the ability to start a business, and that means you. If you have the desire and don't know where to start, we'd love to help. So please visit us at bitbox.com to find out more.